Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest. I actually found this guest's music a few years ago. I was at my local record shop, skimming through the records, and I found his band's off-the-shelf album, and I brought it home, and I just thought the lyrics were really catchy. It had some really cool guitar riffs on it, and I've been a fan ever since. That band was Bat, Dorf, and Rodney, and you've also heard of his band Silver that had the 1976 hit Wham Bam featured in Guardians of the Galaxy. This week's guest is John Batdorf, artist and songwriter. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. I had a great time talking to John, and we'll see you at the end. How you doing today, John? I'm great, Justin. How are you? I'm doing real good. So getting right into your story, you grew up in Yellow Springs, Ohio. What was your childhood like? Well, I was only there till I was in uh, kindergarten, so I don't remember a whole lot about it. But uh, we left for Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, were there for three years, and then came back to Ohio uh, when I was in fourth grade. And we stayed in Ohio. We moved around a lot in Ohio, and um, I was there until I was 15, and uh, went to Beaver Creek uh, High School, my ninth, uh, ninth grade. And then uh, I joined a band who was big in Dayton, and we went to Los Angeles, just supposedly for three months to try to get a record deal. And they were like the hot band in Dayton. And uh, I never went back. <laughs> I just I said, I have to stay in LA. I don't want to go back to Ohio. And I didn't. So there you go. So were you in high school still making trips to LA? Or was this post high school that you ended up making the, the move out there? Actually, uh, I ended up having to take night school and private school to appease my mother, who was freaked out that I was out there uh, on my own. But, uh, you know, it worked out. You know, I'm, I'm still here. I didn't die. And uh, there were some uh, interesting times back then. But, uh, you know, uh, the band broke up in about uh, six, seven months. And uh, I, the, the four of the rest of the guys who were in the band uh, kept playing. And I ended up going solo. And uh, I ended up going to Las Vegas when I was 18 uh, and met Mark Rodney there, which wow. was really ironic because he didn't live there and I didn't live there. But I went there with my girlfriend at the time and uh, we got really, really tight and really popular. And uh, I told Mark, I said, but we, need, we need to go back to L.A. because I think uh, I think that we could probably get a record deal. And uh, he was 18 and um, I was 18 and we got in a VW with two other people and went back to L.A. and, and got a deal within a week. Wow. Pretty, yeah, I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore, man. It's, it was just magical. It was great. Now, I want to get back to you and uh, Mark in a little bit, but kind of growing up before you even started music, who were some of the artists that you were listening to growing up that even got you interested in music? Well, it, you know, I was surrounded by my father, my uncle, my mom, my grandparents, both sides, all were musicians. So I was always surrounded by music, um, took guitar lessons, uh, I think when I was six, uh, I had to use uh, like a lap steel acoustic with a bar because you know your fingers are so small at that point you can't really play the guitar yeah and um and my uncle was was at that time in the early 60s was a was a, a big country artist he had four top 10 singles right and I think it was earl scott at the time so i was always around music but i was so young and i didn't really get you know that was all country music which i i just felt like old people music to me <laughs> So it, it really, you know, I went back to uh, Ohio and, and uh, played a little trio when I was in fifth grade called the Moonbeams. And we played uh, stuff like, like uh, Peter Paul and Mary and you know, Skeeter Davis. And just, this is all pre-Beatles. 
but it was really when the, I saw the Beatles, I just freaked out and said, gosh, I, I have to do this. This is what I want to do. And, and uh, you know, I didn't get as big as the Beatles and didn't get to get on the Ed Sullivan show, but I had a, I've had a heck of a ride and still ride. And so it's worked out all right. Heck yeah. Now, when you first got to Vegas and you started working with Mark, did you guys start doing cover gigs or automatically you guys started riding together? Well, uh, I went and got uh, a job at uh, University of Las Vegas, the coffee shop. They had music there on the weekends. So I got a gig. I think I got 100 bucks a weekend. And I, I, I kind of did the cash register, swept up and did four sets along with some other people who would sit in. And I was mainly doing originals, but I was doing stuff like Down by the River and Long Time Gone because uh, I was a big uh, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Neil Young fan. And I did some Beatles songs, but I was really wanted to do the originals. That's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, this guy kept approaching me and said, hey, man, uh, you know, let's, we got a jam. I love your stuff, but I, I didn't really want to jam with anybody. I didn't, wanna, I didn't want another band guy. I already had enough bands. And one day he came up, like the last set of the night, and we played, and uh, it was great. So I, I thought, well, maybe we should uh, work out some of my originals. So we used to sit out at um, Paradise Park in Las Vegas every day, and we'd go out there and we'd work on songs. And we had about, I think I had about 25 songs. And uh, we worked on them until we got them really tight, started playing a lot in Vegas, and became very, very popular. And I went to L.A., and, uh, and we were just so rehearsed and so enthusiastic that it rubbed off on everyone that heard us. They, I mean, it was just so exuberant and just so exhilarating to see these people who loved playing music so much uh, that it, it just was very contagious. So that, that was kind of our thing. I mean, we, you know, the songs were, were good songs, even though, uh, you know, they were obviously songs from an 18-year-old, but probably started at 17. But uh, we were really excellent players for our age and uh, made a really great record. The off-the-shelf record was, was a fantastic record. And Ahmed Erdogan produced it, who was the president of Atlantic, and he wanted to take us to Muscle Shoals to cut the record. Yeah. And those guys were so great. I mean, you know, they just fell into everything. So I played them the songs, they write charts, we do one or two takes, it was over. And it was, it was just great. I mean, it was I mean, beyond great, I wish I would have filmed that whole thing because it was so great to be there, but you just don't think about it back then. And I didn't have my iPhone because it was 1971. <laughs> <laughs> now, what did that writing dynamic look like with you and Mark when you were co-writing? Was like, uh, would you say that one person was more like, okay, I come in with the melody and then maybe one person was more the, the one that came in with the lyrics or maybe someone came in with a guitar riff? What did that dynamic look like between you two? Well, Mark really did write. Um, I did all the writing. Uh, I was the lead singer. Um, what I would do is I had a tape recorder and uh, I would just say a song like Home Again, which was on the second album. I would record a part that I thought uh, you know, was the main part. And then I would kind of work on a part that I thought that would show Mark that he could take from there from my just my idea. And that's how we kind of worked together. We uh, Sometimes we just get together with the song when it was done and he would sing his harmonies. And he eventually, I was always trying to get him to write because it was such pressure for me to have to write everything. Yeah. But, you know, I did. And um, that's the gig. And eventually he wrote some stuff, but it really kind of wasn't his, his calling. I mean, he was such a unique guitar player and, and so great. I, I never heard anybody play like him. Um, there are clearly better players than both of us. 
but we both had a very unique style and together it was just this really cool thing that happened. Totally. Now, one of my favorite songs off of the off the shelf record is uh, Don't You Hear Me Calling. What do you remember about the day you wrote that song? Well, um, after we cut our album in Muscle Shoals, uh, Amit called and said, you know, I don't think we're there yet. Says, uh, I think you need to write some more songs. And I, I was really bummed out at the time because I thought our record was done. We were going to be out and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, he's, he here's a record president saying, you know, I want you to stop trying to write hits. I want you to write what you feel. So uh, there were three songs I wrote in that period. Uh, one was Don't You Hear Me Calling, uh, Me and My Guitar, and uh, gosh, what was the third one? Um, Let Me Go. And they were definitely better songs than the ones we took off the record. Uh, there was just something that happened because the songs I wrote before were pretty much all pre-Rodney. And once we kind of got this thing going, I started writing for us, not for me. And um, I always loved uh, Stephen Stills. Uh, I, I, you know, I just loved his playing. And, and I was a keyboard player until I heard Buffalo Springfield and, and got an acoustic and, and just thought, I, I want to play like that guy. He's great. So uh, that was a big influence on us, as were the Beatles. And uh, I remember writing those songs, feeling that, I really had to come through for the band because if I didn't come through with the songs that Ahmet liked, um, maybe that would never come out. So he loved the three new songs. And, uh, and so off the shelf, we ended up cutting off the shelf in LA with uh, Chris Etheridge on bass and John Barbada on drums. And uh, that was it. Then we mixed and uh, the record came out eventually. And that's why we called it off the shelf. It took so long to come out. <laughs> said they probably took it off the shelf so so that's how the title got there but yeah i love that song that song was really one of my favorites of the record now what did those first few years on the road look like for you guys after your first album came out oh it was it was sick it was like a kid in the candy store i mean we went out uh you know, we we played the troubadour a bunch of times uh, just for the open mic time and uh then we we signed with an agency when we got the record deal we went out on tour with uh a big hit band at the time, Bread, with David Gates, and they had monster, monster hits. And so we played for, uh, you know, 10, 15,000 people uh, a night. And they had this stipulation when they uh, heard about us wanting to be on the show. They said, well, we, we play in a semicircle and we don't want to touch our gear. If you guys can fit within our semicircle, then you guys can have the tour. So luckily we were very skinny at the time. We all fit inside that semicircle, and, and we did great every time we went out there because they were kind of a, a middle of the road kind of uh, soft ballad band, and we were kind of like these, you know, hippie rocker guys that that loved playing acoustic guitar and loved singing melodies. And, and I remember a guy in DC who became a big fan. He said that when we came out, when he went to the Bread show, he thought we were Bread's roadies. He said all these freak guys came out with the really long hair, and then we started playing. He goes, "Oh my God, these guys are great." <laughs> wow so it was so, great it was fantastic I and mean, we you know it, but we just felt the weird thing about it was we just felt like uh that we deserved to be there we we felt that we were really really good and we didn't feel like oh my gosh i just can't believe we're here we thought that we were so good at the time that this is where we belonged and it, it was never overwhelming to us to go out and play for all those people we just absolutely loved it and did some great gigs and we did 
Brandon, on this, probably the same tour, we ended up with uh, the Young Bloods, who were a really great band. We played Carnegie Hall with the Young Bloods. And we wow. played all these incredible places, and it was just like nothing to us. We went up there because we were so tight and so confident. And uh, we had a bass player and a drummer, and we practiced all the time. And it showed when we played because it was, it was, we didn't have to think. We just went up there and played. It was great. Now, in uh, 1975, you and Mark decided to part ways. What was that decision like? Uh, you know, it's, I guess it's like a bad marriage. It, it was good for the first three records. And there was turmoil and there was uh, some stuff with Mark that, uh, you know, Mark wrote a bunch of songs, which I had mentioned I encouraged. But uh, Clive Davis at the time, who was the president of Arista Records, didn't pick his songs and he got really depressed about it. So I ended up giving him half my publishing on my songs and uh, a quarter of the writing just to keep him interested. But from that point on, you could see the demise was happening. And just that, that thing we had in the beginning, that fire, that just like confidence and cockiness was gone. And, you know, it, it just happened. And so um, we had in, in the last tour, we had used uh, Brent Midland on keyboard, mm-hmm. who uh, was a fantastic singer, fantastic uh, keyboard player, and ended up going to the Grateful Dead after our, our thing. And, uh, and when, when I figured I just couldn't do it with Mark anymore, um, I asked Brent and another guy that I met, Greg Collier, said, hey, you know, I, I got this meeting with Clive in two weeks. Would you guys like to go in and try to pitch the band to him? And uh, so we rehearsed every day. And went and played for Clive, and uh, we got a deal. So we we made the record, uh, Silver Record. So did you guys pitch him Wham Bam that first day that you guys met with him? <laughs> no, actually, it's a long, long story about that song. Uh, when, uh, I think when we signed with Arista Records, uh, Clive Davis uh, insisted on giving you two outside songs. And you know, we'd never done that before. We always had our own material. Right. So... Uh, on the first record, he pitched two Jim Weatherly songs, You Are a Song and uh, To a Gentler Time. And, yeah, they were okay, and it turned out not to be hits. So when the, when the next album was coming up, uh, he wanted to, to record two songs and put them out right away before the fourth album came out. And so he gave us uh, the song Somewhere in the Night, which we recorded, and actually went on the charts at number 80 the first week. And this other song that I said, <laughs> I, I can't sing it this wham bam song it's so dumb <laughs> and I said, you know we have some integrity here man i can't go sing that because well you know it's, it's either that or the highway so we cut the song and then uh, mark sang the backgrounds on it and the band broke up i mean mark and i broke up right after somewhere in the night and uh so clive's stipulation with us was okay i want you to take mark's vocals off uh, and put Brent and Greg's vocals on the backgrounds, and that'll be Silver's first single. And he said, if you want want to make an album, that's the deal. So um, we did it, and we thought that's never going to be a hit. So it's just such a dumb song. And it went to number 16 in the nation, so, <laughs> so we had to play it every night, which we hated. <laughs> but, uh, but eventually it got in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, so it was it was worth it. That's what I was, that's my next, was going to be my next question. How did you find out that uh, it was going to be in Guardians of the Galaxy? You know, I didn't even know there was a, a Guardians of the Galaxy one. And, and somebody sent me an email when I was out on the road and said, hey, 
you got to read this article. It was a Rolling Stone thing, and uh, it was uh, about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So I why would somebody send me this? I have no idea. So I, I start reading uh, about the project, and these 70 songs. I'm reading, you know, one monster hit after another. <laughs> I saw Wham Bam by someone. I go, okay, someone's pulling my leg. <laughs> this is got to be BS. <laughs> There's no way we're in this movie. And as it turns out, we were, and it was, I was so shocked. And uh, I thought, well, gosh, so I, 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 when I first heard it, I thought, well, I don't know if it, it, maybe it's not going to be really us. Maybe they did a redo of it. So I went to the movies here in Oregon where I live, and I went on the big screen. It came out. I'm like, damn, this is so <laughs> So I, t- I took a bunch of neighbors down there. We watched it. And uh, then they put out these YouTube pages for uh, the record. And... Uh, each song had its own page, and we got up to at one point eight million views on that. And I thought, my gosh, this is insane! So uh, that particular summer was in uh, 2017. Uh, we had a lot of forest fires here, so I was stuck in the house with smoke. And I said, you know, I, you know, I'm no dummy here. I, I need to do a new version of, of Wham Bam and start playing in the set. So I did an acoustic version of Wham Bam. And uh, I decided, well, maybe I should do some more. So uh, I did Wham Bam and Somewhere in the Night and some other songs that, uh, you know, I didn't really play in the set anymore because it, they weren't on any albums. And recorded this record. And when I did it acoustically, I thought, well, other than the chorus, sing Wham Bam, Shang Lang, it's not that bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got over it. It's not play it live because everybody wants to hear it. It's crazy. That's awesome. Now, in 2006, you ended up uh, reuniting with Mark on a couple albums on your album Home Again. How was that for uh, not only uh, for your side of the record, but also getting to work with each other now when you guys are older? You know, it was, uh, I had a gig in St. George. And so I had to drive to Las Vegas where Mark lived. And, um, you know, someone said, man, you guys need to reach out and, and, and talk. And so uh, I got a hold of Mark and we stopped there uh, with my wife and my brother-in-law and uh, his wife. And it was really like old times. I thought, oh, this is great. Mark has kids now and he seems different. And, you know, and, uh, you know, why did we wait so long? And um, so I said, listen, I'm doing this solo CD and I'm recording uh, Home Again and I've got a new version of it. And I said, it would just be fantastic if you'd come down to my house and uh, play on that. And uh, maybe this other song that we recorded uh, only live in 1975 called Where Are You Now? And so uh, he said, oh, that'd be great. So he comes to town and, it really was like the original magic. It was, he starts playing with, oh, this is cool, man. But uh, we recorded that, and Where Are You Now? And, he, and I played him the song, uh, I Don't Always When, which was, uh, you know, about someone who was uh, in, uh, uh, who's an addict. And uh, Mark had been through a lot of stuff in his life, and he says, man, this song's about me, man. I, I got to play on it. I said, well, there's, there's no spots. I said, it's already done. He goes, well, I hear this one spot I could play in the, in the bridge. So he's got a little guitar link in there because he, he felt like that was a, he really related to that song. And so we made the record and uh, XM Radio started playing it like crazy. And so people were asking if Mark and I would go out on the road. So we, we did some gigs and then it just kind of got old. It would be, he didn't really want to do it like I did. I mean, I was out on the road uh since 2004 and this was i think we started going out maybe eight or nine we went back and did a uh an xm radio live concert and 
he just, you know, he would cancel out at the last minute and I'd have to do them by myself. And, and then it got to the point where um, before the pandemic, we were supposed to go down to this incredible place called Wildwood Springs Lodge in, uh, in Missouri. And we, I played there uh, with Richie Foray. And before that, Mark and I played in 2008. And it, was, it was great. And so he was going to come and we were going to do a, a, a co-bill with Brewer and Shipley. And two days before the gig, he said he wasn't going. So that was kind of it for me with, I mean, I, it'd been it for me a couple of times, but you know, if you don't love what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. It just, there's no point, just no point. So um, I know he's been going through some tough times. Um, I've tried to reach out to him, um, but he's not getting back to me. And, and I, you know, I, I just wish him the best. For sure. Now, earlier this year, you released your own solo project called Side Two. What's your favorite track about on the album, and uh, what was your creative process like? Well, you know, when you, uh, I decided a couple of years ago, actually it was three albums ago, last summer, um, because of the way the business is now, and so many people stream music, I thought, you know, maybe I should just record and put the songs out in, in pairs, while they're still really fresh and you know they're because usually you write a song and by the time you record it, it's a year and a half two years later and kind of misses the moment that was the thing that caused the song to happen to begin with so uh, i started doing that and um and i've been doing it ever since and the only reason i actually still make product is for uh you know people buy them at gigs uh which for two years i didn't do any so i, I Still have a lot of CDs left, but that 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 particular record uh, I had made in um, what was it 2020? I made um, an extraordinary ordinary life, um, and then all these songs came again. That's what happens; they seem to come in, in batches. And once I start writing, I just it just goes and goes. So I, I recorded all those songs while they were so fresh. Uh, I love uh, "Dark Wind Blowing." Um, because of all the stuff we've all gone through for the last, you know, several years. And, and I love the song, uh, um, uh, I Saved My Finest Love Song Till Now, because that's really what it's all about is, you know, I realized during the pandemic, I was doing, uh, you know, some online shows. It, and I was really doing it really for me, just so I could play in front of somebody, just so I, you know, because when you practice, it's not the same. Yeah. You have to. You make mistakes when you're live, you just keep going. And, and so uh, I realized um, how much it meant to the people watching. And I, I, I just hadn't thought about how important it was for them who were struggling like me, but couldn't play music, but loved to hear music from someone that they had followed for all those years. And um, so, and I realized how important songs are to people um, as I've gone on, because there's songs to me that are that've gotten me through tough times. And when when I wrote that song, uh, when I'm gone, the song's still here, and that's really what it is. And that's a, kind of a double meaning, meaning when you leave that you want them to singing that song on the way home. But you know, yeah. when the day comes and we're no longer here, we've left that behind for people. So that's a special song. But I, I mean, you know, I I like all the stuff. I mean, it's just like you know asking who's your favorite kid i get it <laughs> you can't really answer that yeah 
So I like to close all my interviews by asking, uh, especially someone like you that's been in the business their whole life, what's your advice to someone that's pursuing music right now? Oh, wow. It's, it's, I mean, it's so tough. Now, I mean, my kids are really good musicians and they just kind of grew up in the wrong time. I'm, I'm hoping that someday uh, that it will be somewhat like it was before, but I don't know. But the real thing is, if you're going to do it, you have to be all in. You can't, you can't do it halfway. You have to believe and, you, and, and never give up and never settle. Just keep going until you think it's the best you got, then move on to the next thing. And you can listen to people, but you need to listen to yourself more than anything else because you know when, 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 when it's not going to happen, and you also know when it's happening, but people just don't think it. Well, guys, there you have it. My conversation with John Bathor. John, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I had an awesome time talking with you. Everyone, go follow him on Instagram at John Baddorf Music. And again, I highly recommend you guys check out Baddorf and Rodney's off-the-shelf record. I really like it. I definitely think there's some tracks on there that you guys would enjoy. And make sure to check out John's new project, Side 2, available everywhere, streaming now. Make sure to come back next week to hear my conversation with hit songwriter. You've heard his song, One Mississippi by Kane Brown, LaVon Gray. I want to give a big thank you to TBD Coffee Co. for being the official coffee of Starting Small Music. Check them out at tbdcoffeeco.com. Make sure to check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from interviews. And also, follow Starting Small Music on Instagram, at Starting Small Music, and let us know what you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.